BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And on this episode, he served 28 years for a crime he did not commit. But if William Virgil didn't murder prison chaplain Retha Welch, who did? We'll revisit our discussion of season two of Accused from the Cincinnati Inquirer. Joining me to get that done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, and host of the These Are Their Stories podcast, my husband and love of my life, Kevin Flint. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. Kevin, can we just be transparent about something? Sure. You finally got me to figure out how to be able to say that These Are Their Stories podcast. You, you're you're going to mess it up next week. Without saying it too quickly, without stumbling over it, do you want to share with the audience the trick you just taught me? You know, I, me? Olivia Burdett does a great job <laughs> over the years of having... T- Double to have to take out because you need to always say it two or three times. Joining me to get that done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, and host of these. I can't fucking say that. We have to figure out a different way to fucking word that. I always say and host of the these are their stories podcast. Host, uh, yes, you always. It's hard to say that these are their stories. So you just gave me one trick and fixed yeah. it. Want to hear what the trick is, everyone? Yeah. Joining me to get that done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, and host of the These Are Their Stories podcast. Oh, my God. It's been since 2014. Yeah. Make it one word. Host of. And host of the no. These. Just stop it. Of. It fixes it. It does. You're a genius. Anyway, uh, that's why you're the love of my life. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. yeah. I'm the love of your life because I haven't mentioned it. I just stewed about it no, for five years. No, you mention it. All the time. Uh, Post of. Anyway, that's why you're the love of my life. Hello, Kevin. The love of your life. (laughs) This is obviously a uh, rewind episode. What is coming up on Monday's brand new, shiny, new smelling Crime Writers On episode? Uh, We're going to be talking about the three-part series on Hulu from ABC News. It's called Demons and Saviors. Okay. Uh, And what are we going to hear, Kevin, in today's CWO Stands for Crime Writers on <laughs> Classic Rewind. Yeah, we're going back to October 20th, 2017. We were just babies for a review of Accused Season 2. I think it was one of the first like major podcasts that came out with a second season. Yeah. You know, and, and uh, certainly one that we thought was pretty good. Yes. Although, as you'll hear, this was not a unanimous verdict. 
And we should mention that since this review, we have become really, really tight with Amber Hunt, right? Yes. And, um, you know, she remembers this review well. <laughs> and uh, we talked we talked about it, you know, quite a bit. And we love her work very, very much, generally speaking. So I think we should go ahead and listen to that. And we'll talk about it a little bit more after we come out of it. Right, Kevin? All right, let's do it. All right, moving on. One of the most acclaimed true crime podcasts last year came from the Cincinnati Inquirer newspaper. Now Accused is back for a second season. Host and investigative reporter Amber Hunt and her team, a.k.a. Amanda, her team is literally one person, they look into the unsolved murder of Retha Welch this season. William Virgil's conviction was overturned 30 years later. So if he didn't kill Retha, a soft-hearted prison minister, who did. So I want to start off with the the structure of this show, because one of the things that I found really interesting about the way that the first four episodes, there have been four episodes dropped as of the time of this taping, um, were structured is that it feels very much like a true crime book to me in some ways, but in a little bit of a non-traditional way. The first episode sort of uses the place, Newport, Kentucky, a.k.a. the original Sin City and the corruption there, and unpacks the place because, as Amber Hunt tells us, it's important to understand the place to understand the story. Laura, what did you think of that decision to use Newport, Kentucky, the original Sin City, as the way to open this story? I liked it. It reminded me of one of the shows I used to love that's not on anymore, uh, City Confidential, mm-hmm. where it was a show, I think it was on A&E. They used to do a murder case, but they would they would really weave in the culture of the city or the town or the community where the murder took place. To re- and you really got a feel of that dynamic and how that played in. So I liked hearing this background. And I was it was also really interesting to hear like the current day what it's like now with these trendy lofts along the river versus what it was then. But it started to also make me wonder what's coming next in terms of these corrupt people and is that going to play a role in this case as I was listening to that part of the story sort of unfold? Yeah, I mean, a big part of the Sin City narrative is that the police chief uh, of the city for a long time was really corrupt. He was actually indicted and convicted (laughs) in a corruption charge. And then when he left his chief's position, his son, who was also indicted, became the police chief that positions in um, Sin City were bought and sold like you get a city job very much like we as you heard in Crime Town for a few hundred bucks. Toby, how did you think about this as the opening for this story? I thought it was good. I think especially when you uh, first meet Retha and it spends a lot of time sort of talking about her, you know, conversion to Christianity and things like that. So to have an idea of sort of the environment in which that happened, I think was kind of important because I think without that sort of scene setting, at least I think I would have imagined a much sort of different thing going on than than what actually was. Yeah, I think that um, Amber does also a very skillful job in the first episode in describing the place and also bringing out some of the dynamics at play which she says, you know, weren't in play necessarily in the press around this case at the time. Like she describes there's that very cool thing where she uh, does that little inside reporting thing, talking about how green reporters were assigned to cover the crime beat. Mm -hmm. And she talks to that original reporter and they talk about being very soft on the story. But she interviews as part of episode one, the original defense attorney in this case. His name is Robert Patton, and he's the one who sort of talked about race coming into play in the story. And he made a very strange case. Yes. (laughs) A 
very strange remark about how in recent times he's noticed that the mixing of the races has become more common and that these couples have little chocolate babies in the stroller. This is the defense attorney who was on Virgil's side. And I thought it was really an interesting choice to put him in this episode in sort of describing the setting. What did you think, Kevin? Yeah, I think uh, episodes one or two could have flip-flopped. It it could have gone either way. I think that probably I wanted to know more about Retha and Virgil sooner so I could be invested in them Mm -hmm. and then see how the town plays into it. Yeah. but, you know, I mean, I think that that's neither here nor there. I mean, you, you kind of get all of that. Yeah, I actually agree with you. I would have flipped the two episodes as well because I think the place episode was really strong. But remember, they they dropped those two episodes in the same day. So we actually got them at the same time. If they had been weekly, I think it would have been a bigger deal mm-hmm. that that episode was first and not second. Well, let's talk about Rita as a character because in the beginning of the podcast, we are introduced to this church-going former addict turned counselor to inmates and counselor to other people. And we hear from a lot of people. I listened back to episode one today and at the beginning of episode two, we hear back from a lot of people who talk about what a saint she was. She was a good person. She was a kind person. She was a wonderful person. And then there's a bit of a turn where Amber reveals more about what was going on in, in Rita's life. Cynthia in our Facebook discussion group said, is Retha a saint or secret sinner? She's having a relationship with a closeted pimp, after all, as well as a number of other men. I'm curious as to what at this point in the podcast, Toby, you think of this character. We'll talk in a second about um, Amber's handling of it. I think that's a separate question. But I'm curious to know what you think of Retha as, as a character in this point and what we've learned about her so far. I think she's she's complicated. And I, I mean, I think that's what that makes it kind of more compelling having to sort of reconcile, I guess, two sides of her, her personality. Although I think you can be a very nice, kind person who also has addiction issues or doesn't take monogamy very seriously. I, I like that, that aspect of things, although it was funny that it did sort of seem like you got one picture of her and then suddenly it was you know you got the second part of it right you know it wasn't it wasn't sort of given to you as sort of an integrated thing mm-hmm. it was like oh here's the saintly you know woman who kicked addiction and found jesus and then a little bit later it's she you know has all these sexual partners and has a relationship with this guy who's you know he's a player and <laughs> a you know all these different things yeah. yeah you know sort of the way it 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 got told sort of made it seem more Jekyll Hyde mm, than yeah. I think it probably really is mm-hmm. i mean i think all those things can coexist in somebody without it really being like a good side and a bad side yeah i mean i think i think the podcast initially is grounded in her revisiting the case as it is in time you know talking about those old news mm-hmm. stories and stuff and so that sort of Pollyannic version of Retha is sort of through that lens. You know, she talks to one of her kids. Laura, what, what do you think of Retha as a character and, uh, and and the fact that we did get this sort of two-sided view of her? I liked it, too. You know, I like the fact that she she's flawed and she's not the, you, you know, person who hasn't done anything wrong or made any mistakes. And I think that that makes this case in general, when you look at how it was maybe prosecuted, how he defended himself, it makes that much more complex. And I think the way that it was kind of revealed in parts is sort of, 
you know, if you look at how you would be maybe approaching this case if you were an investigator or somebody that was going, you know, step by step through the case, this is, you know, the first impression that you get of her is this church lady, she's a recovered addict, and that's sort of the first impression that is sort of presented by her, I think, and by those around her. But then as you get further into the case, that's not the total picture. And it's like, I loved how there was one part that, that Amber dropped in that I really liked when she was like, talking about how she didn't drink. She, well, she didn't drink, but she did once in a while. I thought but, that was uh, very telling, right? But, but he still considered her recovered. But right. then I think there was another part where it's like, you know, if we go from that, she drank once in a while to then she brought over like two bottles of booze to somebody. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, mm. so this, so I feel like we're getting more, you know, bits and pieces as the story goes, but it's in the way that it's being revealed. It's almost like you are going along as it's being investigated and as these parts are coming out about her. Kevin, I think it's a little bit refreshing to have a victim in a case that's being presented in a podcast who is, quote, imperfect. I mean, I don't think anybody is more perfect than anybody else for Uh the most part, but we're so used to the trope of the beautiful, successful, had everything going her way person who's the victim. Those are the cases that get the most attention and get the media looking at them. And, you know, Serial had Heyman Lee, a girl with everything to live for. And, you know, Up and Vanished and, you know, all these other stories. I mean, to some extent, the first season of Accused, Elizabeth Andes, same thing. This is a character somewhat at the margins whose murder is getting a very close look. Isn't that refreshing, or is that just me? Well, I, th- I think it's important to the story. It's not victim-blaming, mean, but when we talk about victimology, we talk about what risky behaviors was she engaging in. And if the perception around town is that she is a saint, then when people start wondering about you know investigating her murder, they're not going to immediately jump to the idea that maybe there's semen from three different men inside right, her right. because they don't see her that way. So those are the kinds of things that lead to misperceptions about the victim by not only neighbors and friends, but also by investigators. Yep. Now, Kevin, Amber had to do something delicate in making this transition where she reveals this stuff about Retha's personal life. We hear her do it. Nanita, our friend and Facebook group member, says, I'd like to say I really appreciate Amber's respectful attitude to the subject matter, especially in terms of the deceased personal life. I think she provides enough relevant material without sensationalizing it or exploiting it. I never felt uncomfortable with it the way I did during S-Town. Amber sends the tone for herself, but also for the person she's interviewing, and it means a lot to me. I picked up on what Amber was saying to interviewees when she talked to them about Retha's personal life when she said, this is going to come up. Uh-huh. So I'm asking you about it. I'm not asking you about it because I'm saying is there anything wrong with it. People have sex. Yes. Yada, yada, yada. But like it's going to come up. So tell me about it. We've had to handle this before in our writing about true crime cases and writing about victims and their and Amber's written true crime books. So she's right. To, yeah. Tell me what you thought about the way she handled this. I, I, I thought it was fine. I mean, I think if you're going to go there, then you may as well explain that you need to go there. Mm-hmm. Um And, you know, I mean, the thing that made season one of Accused uh, Excel was the amount of transparency in the reporting where we got to see or hear a lot of the sausage being made. And I think that that was the kind of thing that they were trying to bring in into season two. 
I don't want to talk about this later. I have some other problems, though, with yeah, that. Yeah, we will talk about your problems, I promise. But I do want to get through this content stuff first. Okay. okay. Laura, what did you think about Amber's handling of the reveal about this other side of her victim, Retha? I like the way that when she sets something like this up, she's, she doesn't give you like this long explanation. She just very succinctly explains why she's doing it and then cuts into the person that she's interviewing. So it's clear and easy to follow. And and I'll say it, it's, it is hard when you're doing interviews like that. It reminded me, you know, when I was doing interviews in criminal cases and you had to ask people all sorts of horrible things. I always would preface it with like, you know, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to ask you this, but it's going to come up in court. So it's better that we just talk about this now so that we all know the whole story. So I've been there as well. And, and it's, um, it is hard, but I think people do appreciate when you approach it that way. So you're not accusatory, you're just kind of laying it out there that we need to know all the facts. Now, speaking of complicated, multifaceted characters, Toby, the protagonist of this podcast, uh, William Virgil, whose conviction was overturned and is now engaged in this civil case, he also is a complicated person with a complicated history. And he does, as you alluded to, do somewhat of a commendable job, I think, maybe describing to Amber uh, the taxonomy of pimping <laughs> and uh, and his own, you know, criminal slash nefarious slash dubious history. What do you think of uh, William Virgil as a character? And what do you think of, of the way he talks about his own past? Yeah, I mean, I think he's he's interesting in that I don't th- he doesn't seem like he's trying to sugarcoat anything. Well, I shouldn't actually say that because he does. He's trying to, to weasel it a little bit when she says you're a pimp. He's like, I'm not a pimp. I'm a player. And she's <laughs> finally like, well, did you take money from those women? <laughs> yeah. It's For like, second. well, yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay, so how's that different from being a pimp? And I love I love when she said, so why is, why is your nickname Champagne? Because that sounds like, and you, and you know she's going to say it sounds like a pimp's name. Yeah. <laughs> right. It was very funny. Like you get the sense that, that you know, he, he he's lived a life and stuff like that. But then when they talk about him... You know, essentially defending himself along with that lame defense attorney. The fact that he kind of was able to find the thing about how you don't have two people in the in the hole together. So therefore, this uh, jailhouse snitches testimony just can't be true. He's clearly smart. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was the for me, that was to, to me the most interesting thing that happened so far in the podcast was that moment where we hear him describing how he knew he had the thing that could get him out. And he put the argument together himself, and he was questioning the witness himself, despite the fact that he had a defense attorney, because he was just trying to get that one thing out. Laura, what did you think of that scene? It was really interesting, because I've seen cases where defendants have acted pro se for themselves. They'll be assigned an attorney to sit with them in court because they're not, you know, a lawyer and then need somebody there to advise them. And it usually doesn't go this well um, when that <laughs> happens. It's usually like, oh, my goodness. Like, I remember one trial that I sat through and the guy kept like, what about the spirit of 1876? And, and nobody knew what this guy was talking about. So this was definitely a case where you could tell he was smart and you knew that he was trying to get at something. But I have to say, after that whole scene played out, I started to kind of wonder if he was manipulating us a little bit. Hmm. Um, I feel like maybe he is smarter than we think and maybe there's going to be more to his story like there was more to Rita. There could be, but there certainly wasn't more to the story of the actual investigation of this case. We hear that the evidence at the scene 
there was a shoe print there and it was basically just entered into evidence as a photograph with not even like a banana in the photo for scale. A banana for scale. <laughs> um, <laughs> and they didn't like take the tile up. We hear that the hair evidence, which was considered good at the time, no longer is. We hear that, you know, the DNA obviously didn't come into play. It was just like this is the type of um, you know material that could come from this person. We hear about that. And then we, of course, hear about the... G.J. box, the withheld (laughs) pile of evidence uh, that was turned over at the last minute, the ex-girlfriend. But, you know, one sort of anachronistic thing I just want to mention in the episode we hear about James Becker. Now, this is uh, Retha's boyfriend, identified as Retha's most steady boyfriend. He's the one who had the hooded figure story where he claims that, you know, he saw the hooded figure outside of her door the night that she was ostensibly killed. But he also has this crazy story of their day with the VCRs. Yeah. And that Amber feels the need to say, like, hey, for those of you who may not remember, Kevin, do you remember when you had to go rent a VCR at the video store? Uh, no, I was had a VCR, right? <laughs> Life was good at the Flynn household where we had our own VCR. We didn't have to rent one. But I do remember seeing them in the store where you could rent them along with Beverly Hills Cop 2. <laughs> um, but the one thing that really stuck out to me in, in hearing about this investigation was this conflicting notions of what an investigation is supposed to be. Now, Toby, we hear that this investigator um, disagrees with experts who talk about investigations. Um, there are two perspectives. One is that in a good investigation, you follow every lead until you find the best theory with the most evidence. And according to one investigator, at least in this case, what you're supposed to do is run down the best lead until you get nowhere and then start following other leads. What are your thoughts on those two theories of criminal investigation, Toby? Was it leads or was it you find your your suspect? <laughs> Pretty much, you, yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So two things. One is, you know, that's clearly insane because you're you're put in a situation where if he doesn't find evidence that exonerates somebody, then he's going to assume they're guilty, which is not the way it's supposed to work. And even though it's the police and the idea that you wouldn't spread the net a little bit wider on the off chance, because even if you're like even if you're right, 80 percent of the time, one out of five times, you're just totally wrong and you're going to go after the wrong person. The other thing is that it, it, you know, this sounded a little bit like uh, the way the Adnan case was handled. Mm-hmm. They're like, it's that dude. And then they kind of built the case around it without exploring other avenues. Seems to be a common theme, does it not, Toby? I think it's easy. I think it's easier if you have a big caseload to take a look at cases and be like, oh, yeah, it's that guy, this one, that guy that cuts down on your legwork. So I don't know how much like the realities of being a cop at that time. But I, th- that's the only justification at all I can see for, for doing that is if you just simply can't handle your caseload. But it, it can't be a best practice. Right, right. Well, we heard about how some of these suspect investigative techniques and suspect evidence stuff has ended up having there be lots and lots of people in America who have been imprisoned wrongly. And we heard that from our very good friend, Legal Siri, Colin Miller, who makes an appearance in episode three of the podcast, in which we also get a shout out. Right, Kevin Flynn? Name drop! (laughs) One final thing I want to address uh, before we get into some of the issues that uh, Kevin has hinted that he has with the podcast. I want to talk about Amber's reporting style. I think she has a really distinct way of approaching these stories and of telling them. 
aside from just her voice, which I personally love and think is one of my favorite podcast voices because she has this back on her heels way of delivering the story. And you hear it both in her narration and in the way she talks to people. And there's a lot of consistency there, which I really, really love. But Toby, I would just love your thoughts because you sent me a note today about Amber as a storyteller and a reporter. Yeah, I think Amber, you know, what she does well is it seems like, you know, there's a couple different models of true crime podcasts. So there's like the sort of straight reporting, like Dirty John, where there's a story and they investigate it but it's basically happened and you're just, they're just sort of telling that story. The other model of the, is the sort of, I'm a part of the story, which serial is the, is the obvious example, but S town was the same way and they're pain Lindsay. Um, but I think Amber does a good job of sort of finding the, the middle ground there in that her personality comes through, but the story isn't necessarily about her finding out stuff or her growing relationship with people who are involved in it. You, you you get to see her reporting more, I guess. Right. But it's interesting because she does. She does explicitly say she wants to do right and find the truth for victims. She said the whole season one, it was like the mission statement was I'm on a crusade to solve this thing and find out the truth. And yet I agree with you. She doesn't push buttons to make things happen. She just tries to gather facts, which I really, really appreciate, especially as someone who works in a newsroom. Like, that is what you do when you report stories. Gather facts and draw lines and come to conclusions based on facts and dig things up. And I don't know. I really appreciate that we get to hear her do that. Now, Kevin, I do want to turn to you because I, spoiler alert, on the panel, you have told me off the air that you have some issues with the production of this podcast. You're not alone. There Mm -hmm. are issues that came up on our Facebook page group. Amber addressed them. But I'd like to hear why it is that you had trouble with the show as you were listening to it. Right. As you said, Amber Hunt did go on Facebook and answer a lot of the questions that our listeners had about the technical deficiencies of the podcast and you know in her defense she said that this time around uh, there were not the same amount of resources for technical assistance and so Amber and her partner are are trying to get you know through it the best they can I feel horrible because you know we know Amber and we say this is like why we don't like to make friends with other podcasters no it's like like, we like to make we don't like to review things our friends do it's not the same we've loved to make friends with other podcasters yes because they created a she created a fantastic podcast a year ago the problem with uh, the audio is that the levels are all over the place and it's not because oh it doesn't sound all super sharp it makes it hard to hear and understand what's going on. The last eight minutes of episode three, it was impossible for me to understand what was happening. I was listening in the car. And part of the problem is that I don't believe they are writing to the tape, meaning that as they set up stuff, they're not writing into what the next audio piece is, is going to be. And, you know, we do like an awful lot of, you know, her showing us, you know, how the sausage is made. But it ends up being like, like this. She'll say, I asked Virgil what he thought about Santa Claus. Virgil, what did you think about Santa Claus? Uh, well, you know, I'm a big fan of uh, Christmas, and uh, I do like Father Christmas and Santa Claus. We then talked to Dr. Uh, so-and-so from the Christmas Institute about uh, why uh, Christmas is so important to convicts on death row. 
Well, convicts on death row need to have uh, okay, okay, okay. Right? You're it's making all over the place, and the problem with that is not because it's ugly; it's because it gets in the way of the momentum of the entire storytelling. Right, right. It slows it down. It's impossible to hear what's going on. There are ways you can do that. I understand. You know, she didn't have two microphones, so when you hear her ask the question, she's way off mic. You could boost that. More importantly, you can cut that out. Okay. Well, I just do want to say that Amber did give some really good and cogent details about the production of this. Can I just rebut? I rebut something and add something. You can. You can. One, this is far from the worst podcast I've ever listened to in terms of production. Amber's tracking is great. Mm-hmm. I love the music, and I think the story is narratively is put together well. The levels are a huge issue, and there's something that I wish I could do when I hear a podcast like this that I always feel like. This is what I do, right? I mix audio uh-huh. that's designed to be heard. I do it for us. I do it for other shows. It is very, very important to think about how people are going to listen when you mix your audio. And this is not something that people who make video like you have experience in. I remember when you first started working on this show, and you started working on audio, mm-hmm. you thought that doing the audio was going to be super easy because you used to work in radio news because you used to work in video. Mm-hmm. And the thing that is different between video and audio is that in video, you are seeing something and if you just listen to the audio track of most news videos like there's tons of jump cuts they sound like really strange just hear me out okay so when i mix this podcast right not only do i level everybody the whole way through but then i add a layer of compression so that it will sound good on car speakers in particular Uh i do two things i make sure it will sound good for people wearing one headphone and i make sure it will sound good on car speakers because The thing that I think a lot of podcasters don't realize when either they mix in stereo or their levels are all over the place, that when you're in the car, you are not listening with something in your head. And one of the speakers is three feet from you. Mm -hmm. And when you listen with one earbud in, which a lot of people do. No, they don't. Yes, they do. There's no no data that backs that up. (sighs) I do. I do. Because when I'm listening to something in bed and I lay down, I don't want the headphone on the side that's on the pillow because it's uncomfortable. And I listen with one because I walk the dogs and I want to be able to hear if there's a gunshot or another person. A lot of people listen on one. This show isn't mixed with the listener and how it's going to be delivered in mind. And those are not difficult fixes, but they are actually fixes that someone who knows how to do it can do and that somebody as Amber explained they're, that they're missing that resource that person isn't there who knows how to do that and Amanda was away on maternity leave for part of the production of this so she wasn't there for a lot of mm-hmm. it so there's a reason why but I think it is far from the worst produced podcast we've heard. Alright you tell me off air what you think the worst produced one was. Oh, I will. I will. Right. What, what do you think Laura of these technical issues did they like s- seriously detract from your enjoyment or partially or what? Um, Partially and and I felt bad about that because I, I really liked the story and I liked the people we were hearing from but when we had like echoey interviews and it sounded like they were in a wind tunnel I, I it was hard for me to hear so it did take away but I still like the story and I like where the story's going. I just, it's a little distracting at times. One final question before we do our reviews, Toby, and I'm going to send this your way because I think it's something that you have talked about before. Josh, uh, a friend of the show, also posted in our Facebook discussion group about the difficulties of making a season two of anything (laughs) when expectations are so high. Toby, do you think that um, Accused season two, like a lot of sophomore seasons, is facing some of that same pressure and, and it difficult to live up to that expectation she's not getting that pressure from me <laughs> i think that's I, I don't know this doesn't feel to me like a sophomore slump the way some other ones have so yeah i i guess i haven't picked up on that it's not like true detective season two <laughs> <laughs> or uh 
What should we call it with Ross from Friends? <laughs> uh, that, yeah. That was sad how that one ended up. All right, Laura Bricker. This seems like a good time to uh, do the thing we do where we review the podcast. Thumbs up or thumbs down. Would you recommend to our listeners that they check out the second season of Accused? What is your review, Laura Bricker? I would say yes. I would say thumbs up. I like the story because it's a guy that, you know, has been cleared as a wrongfully convicted person. But we're looking at the case in such a way to, to maybe ask, is that the case? Is there something else going on? Who really did this? So I think it's an interesting case. My only thing is it is it is hard with the audio. So like I listened to it just like on my iPad one day without headphones. I wouldn't recommend that. So you have to think about how you're listening and where you're listening. Um, but if you can get past that, I think the story is great. And I love the way that Amber tells the story. Toby, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Accused Season 2? I give it a thumbs up. I, I've really enjoyed it. You know, it's funny because I hadn't really thought about the sound things because I always just figure it's kind of my fault like (laughs) like I must have done something wrong (laughs) but I did end up listening to it twice because I felt like I didn't have a total grasp on it and that might have had something to do with it that being said you know I don't listen to most things twice and this one held up for the second listen I found it very very enjoyable to listen to yeah I give it a thumbs up too you know my listening experience of this I will say, admit, admittedly, is different from what our audience will have because we had the second two episodes in advance. So I was able to listen to one, two, three, four in one session as I was doing like my walk and housework and stuff. And as a narrative, it all really stuck together for me. And I like the way it's unpacked. I'm a huge fan of the way that Amber reports in general. And I think she's putting her touch on this story. The audio stuff is a problem. I mean, frankly, it's a problem that I could fix, you know, just with the tape that they Mm -hmm. have. I mean, I, I think about phone tape. And if you're looking at visual levels and the way they peak on a meter, phone tape will always peak higher. So there is a temptation to mix it lower. Like those are just things that you just know when you have a lot of experience doing audio. You can tell that that's absent from this. And it's an issue. And that's that is something that holds it back from being as good as season one. But I'm giving it a thumbs up. I think it's a super interesting story. Well told. I'm a huge Amber Hunt fan. Aside from the fact that now, like, I know her. I'm just a fan. Like, I just really, really love her style, love her voice, love the way she does her work. And Kevin, what is your review? I'm a thumbs down. I'm sorry, Amber. Whoa, she whoa, won't. Whoa. Yeah. I know she won't <laughs> talk to me again. But I'm glad everybody else was thumbs up. I just, like I said, I I just thought I'm not giving it thumbs down because it's bad technically. I'm giving it thumbs down because the technical difficulties make it impossible to follow the story at the kind of pace that you want. I think this would be, you know, a great newspaper article, a magazine article. It's just not coming together tech-wise as a podcast. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. 
Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. So, Kevin, there are a couple of updates after that review yeah, of the Yeah, can I just give my, uh, my update, which sure. is that w- when we finally uh, met Amber Hunt, yeah. the first thing I said is, are we good? Yeah, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm but, so sorry. But she said that like that criticism about the production quality informed the way that they got the Cincinnati Inquirer to produce the, the subsequent episodes. Yeah, they so. got some more resources, and they actually, I think, went back and did some tweaking on the audio of those episodes. Isn't there also a, a news update regarding this case? Yeah, William Virgil uh, died in 2022. Ironically, he was found in a hotel room in the bathtub, oh. just like Retha Ward was found in the bathtub. That's wild. Yeah, and uh, but his, his effort to get some remuneration for for a wrongfully convicted person I, I believe that continues okay and that would probably why go to his family if that, uh, that case uh, moves forward yeah that's really really sad that's tragic oh well anyway I would recommend that everybody listen to Amber Hunt's subsequent work Seasons of Accused her work now on Crimes of the Centuries of course she's also going to be with us at Obsessed Fest I believe right yeah 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 anyway I love Amber she's a wonderful 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 person and of course Amanda is also wonderful Uh, Does that do it for us, Kevin? Yeah, that does. And people should tune in Monday to hear what? Uh, We're going to be talking about Demons and Saviors from Hulu. All right. This show was recorded in the Treehouse Yoga Studio above the Mockingbird Cafe in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi Studio, otherwise known as Studio C, The Closet, in our New Hampshire basement, where I also berate Kevin frequently for the inferior audio quality of this very podcast. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you Later. later. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.